Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We enter another week of lockdown with a series of items to address. Will pubs really stay closed until Christmas? Could schools be open again next month along with hairdressers and garden centres? Is China really going to be held to account? Are the over 70s going to be forced to stay home until October of 2021? And what on earth was the Sunday Times thinking yesterday when it published an entire dossier of complete and utter balderdash? Throughout the course of the show today, we will be tackling all these issues with our usual tenacity our nose for news and our search for the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. There's much to discuss and we want your input as well after another rather pleasant weekend where loads of people were out in public and the police were policing the parks, the streets and even the bridges of London. One eagle-eyed listener spotted a roadblock on Blackfriars Bridge on Saturday and Primrose Hill, to be honest, was uh, as busy as it would always be on a sunny Saturday afternoon. 0344 499 Tell us what you saw, what you heard and what you were told in the last few days. You are our eyes and ears and we need your knowledge so that we can pass it all on to everybody else. There still seems to be quite a few people queuing up at the supermarkets, but I actually managed to get some flour in my one uh, weekly shop this weekend. Uh, I also managed to get some more pasta. So things are returning slightly to normal and we are now looking at what is going to be the plan uh, going forward for the rest of time. Also coming up, we'll be finding out just what the reaction has been to the news overnight that Meghan and Harry are no longer talking to the tabloids. They have sent a letter out to the same tabloids to explain why they're not talking to them uh, and we are never going to tire of making fun of this pair of dunderheads are we also apparently uh, their lawsuit against the mail on sunday begins this week we'll be talking to charlie ray about that because quite frankly the idea they're not going to talk to the people they're suing uh, is rather counterproductive, isn't it? 0344 499 uh, We might be mentioning Meghan and Harry throughout the show. Meanwhile, on homeschooling today, we'll be visiting the local pantomime. And I don't mean Downing Street. I mean breakfast show producer Alex Farrell, who's going to tell us all about how to get involved in amateur dramatics, a subject he knows plenty about. 0344 499 is the number. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Radio, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, life could be pretty uh, upsetting when you're holed up in a luxury hotel complex called the Chateau Marmont uh, in West Hollywood, which is exactly where Harry and Meghan are currently residing uh, before they move in, supposedly, uh, to Mel Gibson's former $15 million luxury pad. But uh, just before we speak to Charlie Ray about the fact that they're now no longer going to be talking to any newspapers of a tabloid nature, uh, we have a message from them. Yeah, uh, here's the thing, darling. Uh, it's the media. Uh, the media. It's the media's fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you mean, Harry? It's it's the media. The media. Why, why, Harry? Let's go out and get our pictures taken with masks on. Oh, uh, 
Okay. All right, Megan. Are you okay? I'm fine. Nobody asks me how I am. Rather unusually, the, the end by the doors is playing in the background. I can't imagine why. Let's talk to Charles Ray, former Royal Editor of The Sun, find out what he makes of the latest shenanigans. Charlie, a very good morning to you. Good morning, mate. Well, I mean, what can I say? Uh, they well, use uh, the opportunity to write a two-page letter to the very tabloids that they say they're no longer going to talk to, uh, who I didn't think they'd talk to anyway, uh, because they're nasty, horrible, ghastly people. Uh, like you, mate, I have, over the years, met and heard from a, a lot of very, very stupid people who make <laughs> very stupid comments. And this one is right up there, yeah. you know, with, 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 with all of them. And how crass and stupid and arrogant of them to issue such a letter, uh, which would have been a bad idea in the, at the best of times, when 16,000 people are dying in this country, including 80 health workers, they're, they're turning it around to be a, a, a me, 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 me again. It is beyond belief. It really is. And it also comes hot on the heels of an interview that Harry gave at the weekend in which he basically blamed the media for over-egging um, the pudding when it came to coronavirus and said it wasn't as bad as they were making out in Britain. Well, stagger again, staggering. He's not even I'm here. Who, who's barely got a qualification for anything yeah. is, is now talking like he's supposed to be an expert um, on, on, on medical issues. Mm. And I find it absolutely incredible that they are taking this sort of action. I mean, I've known for quite a while that they're ignoring whatever little advice that they're getting about dealing with media and everything yeah. else. But th this one, you know, this is... You know, if we're going to look at it, this is an attempt at censorship of a free press in this country. Yes. And it's not going to work because all that's going to happen is that it's, we're going to go back to the very old days when I first started doing royal reporting is where you, all you ever wanted from Buckingham Palace was the two words that you'd like to hear was no comment. Yes. Well, apparently they're not even going to answer the phone now to uh, tabloid newspaper, which is absolutely fine. It ain't going to stop. Right. It's not going to stop at all. Well, to be fair, they're very good at boycotting things. I mean, she's boycotting her own father at the moment who only lives down the road and she still hasn't bothered to take him uh, to see uh, his first grandchild. No, I, well, this is... It's, it, it, everything that they now do, you know, I was very uh, happy for them right at the start. You know, Everybody I thought, was. I, th I thought it was great that she was coming into the royal family, breath of fresh air and everything yeah. else. And here we are now. It's just completely turned on its head. And they've now become probably the most hated couple in the world. But I think I that's absolutely right. That. I think that's right. And we're hearing as well that she is planning to do an interview on Good Morning America at some point soon. I'm not quite sure if, you, if you've heard that yes, as well. Yes, I've heard that, yeah. 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 So, I mean, you know, she's not exactly shying away from publicity. I mean, I would have more sympathy with them if they said, look, we're going to continue to do our charity work. We don't really want to be in the papers. We don't really want to be in the public eye. We don't really want to be in the media. So we're just not going to do it. But, and, and but that's not the case. And it's worth mentioning as well, Mike, that one of the photographers who took the pictures of them the other day, I think when they were out, when they were out supposedly walking... Oh, yeah, delivering uh, uh, food parcels or something. Well, th no, this was after the food parcels. This was just them out walking. Oh, but yeah. It was the food parcel scenario. But one of those photographers was exactly the same photographer who, was who had, had cooperated with their father. Yeah. Uh, you know, so it, it, who's telling them this? I mean, if, if they're not supposed to be telling the media anything, and do they think that the... The paparazzi who will be constantly following them around. Where do you think they're going to sell 
pictures do. Yeah. <laughs> Although mean, I did notice, and I don't know whether it's because of the timing of the uh, of the announcement, but the only paper this morning that seems to have them on the front is actually the Guardian, bizarrely, because I suppose the Guardian would like to use that as some kind of a stick to beat the tabloids with. What? But not not no picture on the front of the mail that I've got, no picture on the front of the sun that I can see, no picture on the front of the mirror. You know, I wonder if they're already deliberately just ignoring them. Yes, but they've been trying to ignore the tabloids for, for, for some time. And no, I mean the tabloids ignoring the, the actual oh, Harry and Meghan uh, announcement. Uh, well, no, I don't think that... You know, I don't think... There was a lot more happening yesterday. There was much more worthy of, well, of knowledge. Well, you can and say that again. Well, that towards the end of the week, we have the start of this virtual court case against the Mail on Sunday as well. So well, that's going to make life a bit difficult for them, isn't it? Because how do you avoid talking to the tabloids when you're actually suing them? Well, exactly. Uh, well, you'd be talking to them in court, so we'll be able to report that. They can't stop us doing anything. That They can't stop the tabloids doing anything. No. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very poor uh, decision that they've, they've sat, sat down and, and made for some bizarre reason. Mm. I don't know why. Yes, it really is quite extraordinary. And, and you have to say, uh, I saw a line from somebody, I can't remember where I saw it this morning, saying that, uh, you know, as William gets more and more sort of um, mon monarchy ready, if you like, or monarch ready, mm. because he's going to be the king of this country at some point in the future. And Prince Charles is going around opening hospitals. You know, these two, you know, maniacs, um, are not dunderheads, I'm calling them, are knocking about in uh, Chateau Marmont in, uh, in in Beverly Hills, which I which I know quite well is a very nice hotel complex, living it high on the hog um, and pretending they're being hard done by. One thing I'd like to know, uh, uh, Mike, is I'd love to be in on the Zoom conference of the royal family later on <laughs> when, they, when they mark the, the Queen's birthday tomorrow and they start talking about, you've actually done what? You've actually banned the tabloids? Yeah. Oh, that's a smart move. Harry. Yeah, well, well done. done. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do wonder as well, because, uh, you know, would they even be um, involved in a Zoom conference with the rest of the royal family? And if it's anything like the one the government put up, you might be able to break into it and uh, join in. You know, that would be, that, just look for the uh, just look for the six the, the, the nine digit code. <laughs> <laughs> that would be absolutely funny. That would be. Wouldn't yeah. that be great? I could go in as Megan, or even yeah. Harry. Yeah, you know? I mean, I would like to sit down with them and, and actually, if I could get a chance, just sort of say, do you actually know what you are doing? Yes. I mean, because they've got this supposedly high powered PR firm in Los Angeles, yeah. uh, supposedly looking after them. Well, they ain't doing them a great service, not at all. Well, not at all. No, it's, it's quite remarkable, really, what is going on. As far as the Queen goes, actually, um, I saw that um, uh, Ben Fogle was getting a lot of grief the other day because he was suggesting that we should all stand up at sort of 7 o'clock at night or whatever on the Queen's birthday and sing God Save the Queen. Naturally, uh, everyone on Twitter went nuts and said it was a disgrace. <laughs> you know. Maybe... Maybe he should have kept that suggestion to himself. <laughs> I mean, look, the, the Queen gets a fair and just praise from, from the country as it is. And like most people tomorrow, I'll be wishing her a happy 94th birthday. Best of luck to her. I think she's doing a fabulous job and trying to keep the country's morale up. And best of luck to her. But, you know, standing outside clapping for the Queen. I mean, how many nights are we going to have in if we don't have to we can't clap for everybody else? I oh, know. It's absolutely <laughs> horrendous, isn't it? I'm, I'm getting well fed up with the clapping, actually, because and the fireworks that are now going on as well, because a lot of people have got pets in this country who are cowering in the house. Absolutely, yeah. We had fireworks near us, and the, the dog did not, like, uh, did not like that at all. And also, as well, I, 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 looking at the, the, the clapping that's going on every 
Thursday night. A lot of those people ain't standing two metres apart. Well, did you see the, the, the ridiculous situation with Cressida Dick, who I'm afraid is going to make herself uh, make her way onto the plank of the week list this week, <laughs> standing on, you know, Westminster Bridge, you know, with a load of police officers standing really close to one another, uh, doing exactly what they would arrest other people for doing. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, Cressida Dick reminds me. Do you remember that programme many years ago with Harry Seacombe and Spike Milligan, The Goons? She I do. Ying Tong, yes. to be perfectly honest. Yes, that's absolutely right. What are you doing down there? Everybody got to be somewhere. I remember that. Charles, thank you very much indeed. Charles Ray, I think we should have another listen to the royal message um, from Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Yeah, uh, here's the thing, darling. Uh, it's the media. Uh, the med it's the media's fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you mean, Harry? It's, it's the media. The media. Why? Why, Harry? Let's go out and get our pictures taken with masks on. Oh, uh, uh, okay. All, all right, Megan. Are, are you okay? I'm fine. Nobody asks me how I am. <laughs> this is Talk Radio. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's time to say a very good morning to Peter Hitchens uh, for our third encounter. Uh, the last one, some people have said, Peter, was so polite that they want me to start interrupting you again. <laughs> well, I'm sure you can manage that. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm going to try and, and stick to what we did I, I last week. I could always interrupt you. You could. We could get going. Yes, absolutely right. Now, let me begin once again by asking you, I read your piece obviously yesterday in the paper where um, you were once again asking the same question, have we gone too far? I was also interested to see at the weekend a, a Swedish doctor talking about how while he said Britain had done the wrong thing, it would be a mistake to lift the lockdown too quickly? Well, I, everybody in Sweden doesn't necessarily agree with the, the, the current Swedish policy any more than everyone in Britain agrees with the current British policy. Mm. The, the, the people differ, and there are arguments in Sweden all the time about what to do, but at the moment they, they're sticking with, with what they have decided to do, and it's worth examining. As I say, that it's the... Uh, it, 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 helps to make this bizarre picture if you actually look at all the countries which have been affected by COVID-19, which shows that there does not seem to be any particular action which any government has taken, which can be shown to have had the effect of reducing deaths or incidences of COVID-19. Mm. And that's the real problem, that we the, the basis, the whole basis of the government's policy is, which m most people have taken as read as being true, uh, that by by shutting down the economy and stifling personal liberty, they reduce incidences of COVID-19, so that the 
pressure on intense care units is reduced is actually questionable. Uh, the whole basis of the policy. And half the problem that's going on at the moment is an awful lot of media who, at the beginning, uh, passively and flaccidly accepted that the government was right and wonderful and terrific and everything they did was correct, have now realized that this is not a particularly popular position. And they're criticizing the government for details of the application of the policy going on about which meetings the Prime Minister attended. And, uh, and, and, yeah, I thought uh, that was nonsensical. Delivery of PE and stuff like that. Well, this is of no interest to me. No. The point, the point for me remains, is the policy right or not? And until there's a, g a general uh, debate about whether the policy is right or not, uh, on, on serious factual grounds and also on, on the, the very serious problem of what is happening all the time uh, to jobs and business and to the economy, which sustains the levels of health which we now enjoy, until that's discussed, we don't get anywhere. And it, it also sounds from from what leak we have from the weekend, that the Prime Minister himself is terribly hesitant about trying to reverse the policy we began. So it, it, it may well be that we're stuck with this for weeks to come. Mm. And, and that, I mean, it has many disadvantages for, for those who are undergoing it. I'm a, a privileged person. For me, it's endurable. Uh, I wouldn't want to be living in a small flat in Sheffield at the moment. Uh, with a large number of children, uh, for instance, nor, nor would I, I would be doing all kinds of other things. My position is much better than someone in that case. But that's not the only point, the openness of it for individuals. The, the really big point is this. The longer this goes on, the deeper damage is to the economy. It's like a heart attack. Yeah. If you have if you suffer a heart attack and you go straight to hospital, then much of the damage can be prevented. If you have a heart attack and you ignore it and you let it continue to, to rip through your vitals, then the permanent damage to your heart and to your health is irreparable. And I see this very much as a national heart attack. Mm. Okay, going that's interesting. And All right. people recognise that, that it needs to be treated, it will get worse. And the permanent damage, leaving us afterwards terribly weakened and limited in what we can do, will be greater and greater. And this is what really frightens me. Okay. Well, I accept that, and I think that's an interesting take on it. What the, the, the Swedish guy that I was watching uh, on a video interview uh, was was basically saying, effectively, that he thought that, that like you, he agreed with you that, that Britain should not have locked down in the way that it did. But if it was to lift that lock, down, it would have to do it rung by rung, as if walking backwards down a ladder, rather than lifting it all at once. And that way, I hope that we're going to see in the next week uh, or two, certainly, conversations being had at government level about what we do next. For example, if uh, in Spain they could lift the, uh, uh, the lockdown on hairdressing, uh, if they can lift the lockdown on garden centres or what they would call non-essential food shops or non-essential shops which don't sell food, then that would be a start. But I agree with you on the basis that if, for example, the sun is correct this morning, that pubs are going to stay shut till Christmas, I think that would be a massive mistake. And I think they have to try at the very least, to come up with a strategy. But it's very difficult to do that because they don't really know how effective lifting that uh, um, uh, lockdown will be or how ineffective it will be on stopping the spread. Well, no, I, I, I think we, last week I said that I, I sympathise with the problem. I, I would, of course, like to see it end tonight. Yeah. Uh, but I know that politics is the art of the possible. You cannot uh, lead the public up to the top of the hill and, and tell them that this is a, a terrible a terrible disease equivalent to the Spanish flu of 1918 or even to bubonic plague, and then suddenly say, well, actually, no, it's not that bad. You can right. all go back to work. Uh, we can reopen straight away. Because they, they, be, uh, they will be actually angered uh, to have been misled, and they will, will, I think, in many cases, refuse to do it. They'll say, no, we're still, um, you, you've, you've thoroughly scared. We're still scared. 
and we're not going to do this. So it's very difficult for the government to... But the problem was, a week ago when we discussed this, there seemed to be signs that within the cabinet there were people who wanted to begin to make a gradual withdrawal. Yes. And this sort of stalled. And the Prime Minister himself, who's coming gradually back to work, seems, from again, from the reports mm. that one reads, to be against doing this. Yes. And so we're faced with... I, I would say that, that, that it, then, it therefore falls upon uh, those of us who have any kind of position in public life where we can get things debated, to say, this is a mistake. I, 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 as I say, I know I won't get what I want, but I think that it would be reasonable for me to say that it, it, it really is time and that steps were taken to begin to get us out of this. There are two reasons for this. One is one I've already discussed, which is the economy. The other is I don't think that this is sustainable very much longer. I think people have put up with it for quite a long time. Do you think, do you mean sort of mentally? I think, yeah, mentally. I think, I think that the, I, I live um, in, a, in, in, a, in Oxford, yeah. extremely middle-class city, mainly dominated by people working for the public sector and the, the education system, the university and the health service. And therefore, it's a city which is, is going to be pretty uh, peaceable and, and willing to put up with this. Yeah. But I'm not sure that out in the, in, 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 the, in the tougher parts of the country where people are scrabbling by on, on, on the minimum wage and on and, and tiny businesses that they've, they've run by mortgaging their houses over and over again, I'm not sure that people are going to be willing to put mm. up with this much longer. No. Also, for us, we're fortunate... The government has to understand that the, the consent for its policy is not limitless in time. No. And I think for you and I, Peter, we're fortunate in as much as we can still work, and, 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 yeah, and we should be fortunate. very I'm grateful for that. Um, I also would say that I think Boris's reticence about this disease might be partially due to the fact that he nearly died from it, and he knows, he and well, not alone, but he knows how bad this could be uh, if, he, if he makes the decision to lift the ban and the lockdown too early. Early. But I also know people, you, and I'm going to agree with you again here, I'm, I'm afraid to say, uh, who are over the age of 70, friends of mine, very fit, uh, people who have a very, very uh, busy social life, who are now saying to me, if they want me to sit at home for the next 18 months, I'm simply not going to do it. No. I think that there is, a, even in the most civil societies, even in the societies where people... And I have to say that the, the, the behaviour of the British business has been extraordinarily law-abiding yes. and controlled. Even in such societies, there is a limit. And it, it has to begin to fade. And what I, I think might happen if the government don't act is that there will be a unilateral uh, undermining of the shutdown by individual action. People will begin to slip back to in, into doing. I, one thinks particularly of the, the vital part of our economy, uh, the, uh, the small-scale building business. Yes. People want it done. People want to do it. They need the money, uh, and, and there aren't enough police. It would seem to me in the world if, if, if people to go back to work on a large scale in that to, to, to prevent it from happening. Right. Uh, and it, therefore, the, if the government wants to keep control of its uh, of, of, of the country and and the way in which things are going, it's going to have to do something. I'll just beg those people who are in, who are actually in government in positions of influence to realise that, as I say, there is there is a limit to how long this can go on for. For those two reasons, one, the catastrophic damage being done to the economy and to people's livelihoods, and secondly, to their own potential ability to exert authority at all.
And there are still many discrepancies in the way that this is being policed, are there not? I mean, we would have seen, you would have seen that ridiculous uh, episode of Westminster Bridge with Cresta Dick uh, and all those kind of, you know, flashing yes, police know. lights, which, which is so uh, kind of, it's just so inconsistent with what it is that they're telling people. And also I watched with sort of some horror uh, a piece of drone footage of a guy walking around in his police uniform in Regent's Park going up to people who were either sitting on exercise mats or, or working out on them and moving on the ones who were sitting. And I thought to myself, well, if you're out doing an exercise on an exercise mat, how can you not sit down? What's the problem? I know. It, it is strange that efforts should be, should be expended on this. But, uh, again, this is, this is one of the reasons why one goes back to, to the, the Swedish option, which has not involved the police. The, the Swedish government has trusted people to behave. And, actually... Uh, in, in the great majority of cases, they do. I'm told. I mean, I, I can't go and think. But if I went to Stockholm, I think I would find that it was actually very quiet, and a lot of a lot of businesses were running very low level, and the and, and people were staying away from mm. work and working from home, yeah. and, and and keeping their distance from each other. It wouldn't be that dissimilar from here. But there is still the the, the, the level of the economic damage is less. Because it's being done purely by public consent, it's more sustainable. Yeah, but is it, uh, but is, is it actually... We need to think that the police... I think the police have done themselves an enormous amount of harm. Yeah. I mean, I knew, and you probably knew already, there were serious problems with the police yeah. due towards the public before this, because journalists come across this all the time when we hear these things. But an awful lot of people previously still had a sort of Dixon and Doc Green view mm. of the police, which has now, I think, been finally swept away by yeah. these events. And Dixon of Doc Green with a video camera. Come from uh, it, now that now, now that last shred of a relationship with the public has been swept away. Mm, exactly right. And what about the business of um, flights coming in from overseas? Because it's another one which is upsetting people. And I I I, I take no joy in criticising the farmers of this country who need people to pick fruit. But, you know, the idea that there are plane loads of Romanians arriving at Stansted Airport when people have been told they can't go out. I mean, I personally spent the entire day yesterday sitting in my one-bedroom apartment. I haven't seen my children for four weeks because I've, thought, I've taken a view that driving to Sussex uh, is, is a step too far. I talk to them on the phone, I, I watch them on yeah. videos, and that's fine. But, you know, even I'm a little bit sort of browned off and cheesed off about that. Yeah, that must be hot. Um, yeah, I... I don't want to get too mixed up in that. I think you could probably have a rational policy by which people who arrived in the country were were checked on yes. arrival and kept in some sort of quarantine before being allowed to, to spread out of the country. Mm. I, I don't think I wouldn't want the borders of the country to be wholly closed. I know some countries have done this, or from certain destinations. Yeah. Uh, and I, I also, as one must be, I was totally wary of this this thing becoming a. Um, getting a lot of, sort of Tommy Robbins-style politics, which I think we all want to avoid. Yeah, no, I, I don't want to go there either, but, but, I, I, but I think it's a genuine concern that people have no, right. about but, movement. I, I don't know how seriously arrivals are being are being checked, but if we really are required to to undergo what we're undergoing in this country, it seems to be anyone who does arrive in this country should be checked yeah. and quarantined before they can be allowed. You, know, you can see it would be catastrophic if huge, if huge amounts of, of, of of crops in this country went unpicked. 
Yes. No, I get that. that. But there may be other, other means... But, well, well but maybe what we need... I mean, I spoke to a representative of the Farmers Association last yeah. week and he told me that the people coming in have already been tested uh, and don't have coronavirus. Now, well, if that's that, so, then... If that's so, then, then fa that's me. fair enough. But it's still, it's, the issue is still about movement, though. The issue is still, if you can bring people into a country, bust them to a farm, uh, let them work there in close proximity to one another, why can't the rest of us do that? Well, I know. That's um, the problem. This isn't a difficulty for me because I think the whole thing is, is, is fundamentally illogical. As you know, I think that the idea that, 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 that government and police, basically you, you can control the spread of a virus by policing, mm. uh, is fundamentally absurd. It is, it is like thinking that you can pass back to make the Atlantic calm. Yes. I, the, these things are not so much under our control. I mean, I was... I, was, I, I, I was... believe that the virus had already spread deep into the population uh, long before any of these actions were taken. Yeah. And, and, and when people were sent home uh, and told to, to live at close quarters with, uh, with their, their fellow uh, home dwellers, I think that probably led to a spreading of the disease by, by sure. very close contact and cramped conditions more than it, it, anything else. But that's the idea that passing somebody a distance of a few feet in a park is a likely way of, of, of passing on a virus has also always seemed to me to be slight. Hard. Yes. Well, I mean, this is this is the advice that we are getting, and I and I and I don't doubt that. And I and I would still argue that the the reasoning for this was not to stop people from dying, but to stop people from overcrowding uh, the NHS faculties and the facilities that we have. Well, yeah, and, but, uh, and I think in that case it's worked. But if you look at the rest of the world, Peter, and I know that you mentioned Sweden a lot, but everywhere else in the world is doing exactly what we're doing. Um, in places like Dubai, where my daughter's living, you know, they have they have basically a 24-hour curfew. You're only allowed out to get food once a week or every four days, I think it is. You need a letter to carry with you in order to show that you are allowed out. You need a mask to wear when you go anywhere in public. And they have basically zero-rated uh, all of their radar guns in the streets so that if you do drive anywhere, they catch you as soon as you move. Yeah, but, but the, that, that's an illustration of that, that Dubai, despite its, its, its flashy... Uh, image is, is, of course, ultimately a despotism of resort yeah. to despotic methods at the first chance. It's not true about everywhere. I mean, I, I, the, here are some figures, if, you, if you'll bear with me. Right. There, there are, here are countries which have avoided hard shutdowns. Uh, deaths per million, Japan, 1.2 deaths per million. South Korea, again, avoided a hard shutdown, 4.3 deaths per million. Singapore, 1.8 deaths per million. And Taiwan, which is oddly not much mentioned, 0.3 deaths per million. And those that have imposed severe restrictions, Spain, at 397 deaths per million. Italy, 358 deaths per million. France, 256 deaths per million. And the UK, I think the last count, around about 193 deaths yeah. per year. Now, there doesn't seem to me to be in that any demonstration that shutting down your economy and stifling civil liberty reduces the incidence of the disease. And you say you separate the issue of whether the disease kills them and the issue of pressure on intensive care. I don't, because actually it is the same thing, basically. If people become serious enough ill uh, to go to intensive care, uh, then we really are talking about the same thing. Well, we're not, no, because what they're actually saying is that if we were to overcrowd the NHS system, if, for example, it became just uh, too hard to handle, as it did become in parts of Italy, then people would die because there wasn't enough equipment or enough oxygen uh, or enough doctors to look after them. And that's the problem that they're trying to avoid, which they have so far avoided. 
Well, and the, the, but that's the man who, who, who digs a huge trench around his house and fills it with water and says, well, my house hasn't burned down, and that's because I dug a huge trench and filled it with water. It's, it, it's, there is any connection well, there is, demonstrated between the two actions. Well, I think there is. I think that's why we can say that it's working in that way. You can perfectly well say that the economy is going to suffer and it may never recover, but what you can't say is that their policy to keep the NHS wards um, with spaces, enough spaces in them to look after everyone they need to look after, that has worked. Well, no, what's happened is that the NHS has not been overwhelmed. Yes, so because, because of the policy. That's, that's something we know. But because of the, the policy. Wait a minute, this is, this, is, this is a vital point here. The, 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 the intensive care system has not been overwhelmed. Yes, because, that, because of the government's it, policy. That, that, but you don't know why that is. It, might, it, it is perfectly possible it would never have been overwhelmed in the first place. No, I think many more people have, been, have died than anyone ever thought, and it's affected many more people than anyone ever thought. No, I don't, I, think that, I, I, don't, I don't think that... I'm, I'm not given to predictions in this, but I, I don't believe I have any way of predicting the number of deaths, but those who have been making predictions... Well, considering uh, that at the beginning uh, of, I, I, of I February, the, the, we the, thought... The, no, the, excuse the, me, the, I'm, the, 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 let me just say this, Peter. At the beginning of February, we were told that we would have a low-risk factor affecting us. This was what the science was saying, that it was low risk in terms of the deaths that were going to happen in this country. That is no longer true. Well, I don't know. I, what, what would, how, would you, how would you quantify this? And we still have this business where it is not clear that people who are, who are, who are, uh, who are registered as having died with COVID-19 have died of it. Uh, it's still not clear, and I think that anybody who looks at the way in which certification is going on will agree that it's, it's extremely vague. Then we have this other issue, you know, the, 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 which is another point that we've, this government has been totally good at grandiose gestures of quarantining the healthy by the million in the homes. But it's been very poor at rather obvious, uh, obvious actions of government that could have been taken. Now, what we knew about COVID from very early on was that the people who were most at risk from it were the old. Yeah. So where are the old concentrated in this country? Unlike in Italy and Spain, where they tend to live alongside their families, the old in this country are in many cases in care. Yes. And so, they've only just addressed so the measure that. The measure that a rational government would have taken would have been to make absolutely sure that those care homes were kept very, very safe from any danger of infection. But that didn't happen. And my guess is quite possibly that if you look at the, at the um, Office for National Statistics figures of, of, of deaths over the past few months, uh, an awful lot of respiratory deaths are recorded, but COVID doesn't begin to come to being recorded until very recently. Now, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think quite possibly there were COVID deaths already happening Yes. Uh, quite possibly in care homes, long before anybody recorded them as such. Yeah. And their numbers of those are probably considerably higher than we've had. Really. And we're not going to be counting so them because... We've got, an, we've got an undercount of genuine COVID cases. Right. Uh, but we've got overcount of, of COVID cases in other places which are, which are quite yes. possibly just people who which, died. Which of, tells of you, right, which tells you... Conditions. Which tells you, Peter, that we are in a much worse place health-wise than we thought, and which means this is a very dangerous virus, which means um, I think that we still have to keep the lockdown in place. I'm going to let you go, though, because we're out of time, sadly. We'll get you back again same time next week. Peter Hitchens, columnist for The Mail on Sunday. Uh, that was, once again, round three. Uh, we may get you to start adding up the points, if you wish, um, but at the moment, I think we are still in a bit of a period of the unknown. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk. 
Radio, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the independent republic of Mike Graham. Ian, Ian Collins indeed coming up at one o'clock. And of course, Dan Wooten here from four. Uh, he'll be bringing you the government briefing uh, as ever with Charlotte Ivers, who will be keeping an eye on things as well. Lots of questions to ask the government today. Uh, we will bring you all of that as it happens. By the way, hearing about Keir Starmer in the news, did you see over the weekend there was a poll done, apparently, and uh, he's managed to achieve what many thought was very, very impossible to do. Keir Starmer is now more unpopular as the leader of the Labour Party than Jeremy Corbyn was. <laughs> Brilliant. Well done, Keir. Top man. First achievement, uh, tick. There we go. Let's talk to Alex Farrell about pantomimes talking to the Labour Party. Alex, a very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. How are you? Um, very well indeed. Now, I've outed you earlier as Julia Hartley Brewer's um, producer, uh, which shows oh, no. that you've obviously got a great sense of humour, uh, apart from <laughs> anything else, because obviously, you know, uh, she, she's sometimes a, a tough taskmaster. Um, but your side uh, sort of thing that you do is you produce a pantomime every uh, every year. And I've, I've just seen a picture of you done up as Widow Twanky. Oh, yeah. Um, where is Julia Hartley Brewer? She's behind me. Uh, yes. <laughs> Every year. In fact, this is my 14th year this year, Mike. I, I must have started when I was seven. Right. And you must have done, yeah, because you're a very young man. Now, now, how did you get into doing pantomimes? By accident, actually. Um, when I was at school, there wasn't any drama. Um, I went to one of these weird schools where there's no drama classes. Um, so I had to kind of find some avenue to get to the stage. Um, and in Tamworth, there's lots of different theatre groups. And a friend of mine ran the Tamworth Pantomime Company. And she said, oh, you should join up. We've got plenty of parts for creatures and, and bushes and, and footmen and all those kind of things. Um, and I said, oh, yeah, that'd be great. I was only 16. Right. I, I turned up to the first rehearsal and the, the leading man who was playing Prince Charming wasn't there. He, he'd got a prior engagement. Right. They said, oh, Alex, could, could you read this, this script? And 14 years later, I'm still the main part. I don't know how it happened. So you're, the, so you're actually the, so the main character is the one that's normally played by some failing DJ or something, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, Tamworth's quite a small town, Mike, so I am I am that failing DJ. Yeah, well, yeah. it's better to be on the way up doing pantomime than on the way down, I would have said. Well, I'd say I was, I was plateauing at the moment. I'm yeah, in the middle. That's um, good. Now, what about the general sort of drama situation? Because I guess a lot of a lot of schools don't really do drama. Um, and, and I'm thinking in this lockdown period, because this is, of course, um, the homeschooling section of the show, because most kids today are going back to school for the first time. You know, the Easter holidays are officially over, but, of course, they're not actually going back to school because they're still in, in lockdown. But it's a, it's a good thing for parents, is it not, to get them involved in, in a bit of drama, maybe get them to write a play or even just to perform one? Oh, it's fantastic. I mean, I've got to declare an interest because I also run a drama school on, on the weekend. Uh, in Tamworth and the, the reason I set that up was about eight years ago I realised there was a real shortage of places outside of school to, to give people that opportunity to, to get on stage right. because if you join a theatre group you can be typecast if, you, if you're not very good you get given the background character and if you're a really good singer then they just give you the main part right. and there wasn't really an in-between area for kids that, that aren't that good you know because kids like football but they're not necessarily the next David Beckham they just want to play right. uh, and it's the same with drama people like getting on the stage and it really helps kids confidence i feel you know because when you grow up you, you get to go in the big wide world yeah. you get a job interviews you know you meet people for the first time 
And if you haven't got that confidence and how to hold yourself, uh, then kids don't really know where to start. So I think drama's a great way of kicking that off. Yeah, and also they can do it as somebody else as well, which is kind of, I think, a good thing because a lot of children are quite shy um, about standing on a stage and, and making a speech, you know, like if they had to do it at school assembly or something. Whereas if you're doing it in a play or as part of a, a, a pantomime or a musical or something, you're actually in character, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it scares me absolutely rigid, the idea of standing up and being myself. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I love playing a character. In the pantomime, I'll, I'll play the dame normally, so that's, you know, a man dressed as a woman. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I've played all sorts of parts, from Shakespeare, um, been in, you know, TV shows, films, and I'm always playing someone different. That's the great thing. You can channel your inner self. You know, you look at an actor like Michael Sheen, the range yes. he uses, Chris Tarrant, Tony Blair, you know, being different people. I think an actor's worst nightmare is to be themselves. Yes, I think that's probably right. So as far as your kind of um, acting prowess is concerned, can you give us a couple of tips if, there, if there's some, say, kids listening and they want to learn how to be actors, um, what, would you, what would you tell them, first of all? Uh, well, firstly, you know, when you're on stage, you should remember that there's a big audience out there. Now, if you're on a, a theatre stage, you should be um, projecting to the back of the room. You should always be um, performing to your nan who's at the back of the room but can't really hear you very well, so you've got to speak nice and loud and project. You've got to perform expressively to the person that, that, that can't, really, um, can't really see what's going on. They've got bad eyesight, so they need to be seeing your, your big characterisms and your mannerisms. Um, and, you know, you, you've got to be performing um, in a way that's believable. But there are different actors that act on screen. You know, a lot of people these days are doing stuff on YouTube, and that's a much smaller acting. You've got to act in your face, so, you know, your little eye looks or the things you do with your mouth or the way you move your nose. Mm. That's the kind of thing that we teach kids. There's a difference between acting on stage in front of a 1,000 people and then acting on the TV, which is much smaller, much more zoomed in. Yes. Um, so I'm more of a theatrical actor. I'm on stage doing the Shakespeare or the pantomime, so I'm big. I mean, my arms go in the air, right. nice and loud. Um, you know, everything I do is exaggerated. Right, OK. And so um, is there a book or anything about drama that they could read or look at, or should they just sort of give it a go? I think people should just give it a go. I mean, there's lots of different drama courses out there. I mean, mm. what we do at our drama school, you know, we spend half the time playing drama games because that gets you in the mood. You know, you've got to be comfortable in your surroundings. You've got to be comfortable with the people you're with uh, and being able to do stuff uh, with people that you wouldn't normally do, you know, uh, the way you kind of move around with people, whether it's physical theatre, you could almost be dancing with people that you don't know very well. Mm. So the first thing is just being comfortable. Uh, but after that, it's just experiment. Do in front of the mirror, you know, learn things uh, over and over again. People often find the learning of the lines a difficult thing. Right. Um, some people uh, record the lines and listen to them again. Some people look away the same way you may be revising for a test. But it's just practice, right. really. You know, you, you can study Shakespeare, Stanislavski, all these different types of actually pin that uses the different pauses. But I would just say, Mike, just have a go. Yeah. You don't have to be the best actor in the world. Just enjoy it. OK. And do you write the script as well for this pantomime, or is it a kind of ad hoc scenario? Yeah, I do write the scripts most years. Um, I'm either the main writer or I collaborate with some people from the pantomime company. Uh, my forte, you wouldn't believe it, Mike, but my forte is jokes normally. I do the funny <laughs> stuff. Um, I, I don't really like doing the, the plot. It bores me. Right. Um, and, and I like ad-libbing. The, the thing about pantomime is there's always something new. You improvise on stage. You're always doing something different. Uh, and that's why I like pantomime as a medium more than any other, because you can do a different show in front of every audience. Yes. You know, you can pick on them. You can make different jokes, ask who they are, where they're from, um, and that's the beauty of it. You know, the fourth wall disappears. You know, uh, you can talk to the audience, and you know they're there, and they know that you know they're there. Um, so it's great fun. Maybe I should apply for a position as Meghan Markle in your uh, uh, you, ensemble you performance. Um, 
And then you might get sued and you'd be famous. Yeah, you can be uh, Megan, I'll be Harry, um, <laughs> and we'll be, we'll be the ugliest sisters. We'll make a fortune. It's a good idea. Brilliant stuff. Alex, thanks very much indeed. Alex Farrell there talking about his pantomime career uh, and how great. I think really, honestly, drama is a great thing for your children to do uh, while they're currently off school because you could do a little play that, walk, that, that works for, say, an hour a day. You know, just get them to write something. Uh, it could be about anything at all, or in, uh, alternatively, go online, um, you know, print out some uh, script for them and let them act out some play or other. It'd be great, wouldn't it? 0344 499 1000. We talked to Charlotte Ivers earlier on today. Uh, we've got her back on now because she has some breaking news for us. Uh, Charlotte, what have you got for us? Well, the biggest story in town before all of this started was, of course, Pretty Patel and the bullying row that she yes. was engaged in. Just had a pretty substantial update on that, which is that Sir Philip Rutnam, who you'll remember is the permanent secretary uh, at the Home Office, who was accusing her of bullying and constructive dismissal, yeah. has actually now lodged his employment tribunal claim against her. He says he was forced from his job for exposing her bullying behaviour. OK. And this is the man famously who did that press conference on Saturday morning outside of his house, wasn't it? That is correct. So there was a long bubbling under of a dispute between the two of them, a lot of briefing and the papers appearing, and then Philip Rutnam, in a pretty unprecedented move, resigned and went public on this, saying that he had been treated unfairly. So what this means in the long term is that all of this is going to have to be discussed in open court. So it looks like Pretty Patel herself is probably going to have to attend court, also her special advisors, senior members of staff. So this is going to be a pretty dramatic hearing, I think, and it's going to mean that a lot of things that would usually happen behind closed doors are going to be seen in public for the first time. Yes, and I mean, I don't suppose you know what the time frame is of any of this stuff, because there does happen to be a worldwide pandemic going on, <laughs> um, so certainly they won't be holding the court session uh, with anybody actually in there, presumably they'll do it all um, if they can, uh, and if they requ are required to, they'll do it all sort of remotely. Yes, exactly. And these things tend to take an awfully long time. I don't think we'll be seeing anything in the immediate future. I should, of course, also say Pretty Patel absolutely denies the allegations being made against her by Philip Rutnam. It's a, a hugely contentious situation. And actually, if you speak to people in the Home Office and in other departments that Pretty Patel has worked, you get a very, very mixed view on what she's like. Some right. people absolutely adore her, some people significantly less so. Yes, and he's using whistleblowing laws rather than unfair dismissal as the reason why he's actually suing, which means that uh, there is no upper limit on the amount of money that he could get. That is correct. And I can't stress how unprecedented this is for a permanent secretary to be doing something like this. Usually they are very much seen as sort of grey men in grey suits of the British establishment who will never say a word in public and put up with pretty much anything, frankly. Yeah, absolutely right. Charlotte, thanks very much for breaking that news. Charlotte Ivers uh, there with the breaking news uh, that Pretty Patel basically is now going to be the subject uh, of um, this particular lawsuit. Uh, it's a tribunal that will hear it, though, rather than a court of law. Uh, but it's Sir Philip Rutnam from the Home Office, who was the senior civil servant there, who famously uh, basically threw Pretty Patel under the bus, claimed that she uh, was unreasonable in her behaviour, claimed that she forced him out. Uh, it's going to be a fascinating case, I dare say. Uh, but if he does win a load of money, it's actually our money. So it'll be us that has to pay this guy out. 
uh, the bloke who's had a rather checkered career, it would have to be said, uh, in his civil service life, not exactly the world's most efficient man, uh, and a bloke who's received millions of pounds from the public purse uh, as a result of having a very senior role uh, in various departments of government. So, I don't know. We shall see. We'll keep an eye on this. Um, you may have to go into the plank of the week, though, which we'll be uh, recording tomorrow, uh, for trying to take more, let yet more public money out of the system to feather his own nest. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK. Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.